Welcome back. One of the one of the highlights of my week, and I love that it starts at the beginning of the week, Tuesday's third hour. We have Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman in the house. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Inside Analytics, Inside Analytics LLC. .com is his website. Hugh Hallman is an attorney in town, an educator, and the former mayor of the city of Tempe. We start with COVID, and we work our way centrifugally outward towards politics and everything else in our culture. Centripetally. Inward. Centrif- centrifugal would be outward, right? Centripetal would be inward. Yes, um, that's indeed how we're going to start. I think I'm right. We are I, now, wait, I wait. I want to know if I schooled Lewis on something. I think you did. There is a, So a centrifugal force, I don't believe, actually, is the correct term for it. I think it, it's all centripetal. Actually, there's no such thing as centrifugal force. And well, there's no such thing as centrifugal force. There is such a thing as centripetal okay. force. So, so no force. It, wait a minute. How does a <laughs> centrifuge operate? Yeah, I think we got Lewis. On now this I have one. to double check my. I, I think book. we got Lewis on this. I, I, one. I, I know one of those doesn't exist. I'm, I'm going to retire now. I schooled Lewis. Yep. Okay. Uh, indeed. You see how happy it made me a couple of weeks ago when my own son said that I was right about something. So here we are talking yes, about COVID, and Lewis has the news on the numbers. So we actually do have some very good news this week. It is a little early to say, but we have seen sort of a slight bend and coming down of the total amount of hospital capacity that is being used for COVID, both inpatient and uh, ICU beds. So... You know, while again, it is a little early to say, and there's enough lagging in the data that we're not seeing it exactly in the testing and case and death data yet. If if the hospitalization trend continues, we'll start to see those positive effects in the rest of those data fairly soon, I would think. Keeping in mind that even just over this weekend with visitors from Kazakhstan, uh, Arizona keeps being touted as the worst place on the planet for COVID-19. And in part, that is uh, our continuing saw about the fact that our Arizona Department of Health Services likes to report the data in ways that make it virtually impossible for normal people and even tough for Lewis, he's not normal, uh, to pull the data apart in a way to figure out what's really gone on. And I think still the most striking example of that is how the department reports deaths, something that is not screwed up very often, but still there are some unusual notions. So I'm taking credit for Lewis's work, but here it is, that as an example, this week, the State Department of Health Services reported 768, that would 784 be, deaths, correct, Lou? Yeah, 784. And yet those 784 deaths didn't occur this week. And the longer the pandemic goes on, the worse this problem gets. And we've raised this point before. The folks keep digging around looking for additional deaths that could be attributed to COVID. Two reasons why. Because it's important to get this right. Secondly, it's because the United States continues to follow a protocol that says that if somebody tested positive for COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 presence within 60 days, they ultimately will get categorized as associated with COVID for the death. Unlike, for example, Great Britain, and we've talked about this before, you can go look it up. Uh, There is a great study that was done when Great Britain finally decided to follow other countries and stop beating itself up and change from a 60-day protocol to a 28-day protocol. That's correct. And so that 28-day protocol, when you then looked at how the numbers changed, it was something on the order of 40%. It was like a 30% reduction in deaths. In actual deaths counts being attributed to COVID. So somebody who had was deemed a COVID death on day 60, now was tested 59 days out. Instead, they looked back only 28 days. They 
weren't positive for COVID in that 28-day period. So now they're not dead from COVID. They're dead from something else. I want to actually, I want to re-highlight that that again, because this is a really important point. It's very, very difficult to get a sense of what's happening around the world because countries report their statistics so differently. And this is a really clear example of that. The number of days that have passed uh, acceptably between a death and then confirming it as a COVID case is a big, big deal. So for instance, again, we in the United States, I believe, use the 90-day standard. 60. 60-day 60, 60 standard, excuse me. And then again, Great, Great Britain is using one that's significantly lower than that. We're also it seeing started at 60 and reduced it to 28, which gave the data available to look at how the numbers changed. And yes. that's, what, that's what gave us in Lewis. I think it was actually closer to 40%, but we'll argue that later. Point is that here we are in Arizona, one of the 50 states in the United States, beating ourselves up for being the worst in the, in the world. And part of that is because we have a different protocol than the rest of the world. And folks here don't want to acknowledge that, especially if the counter narrative. And it is. Secondly, our state keeps reporting data in big clumps, won't supply the data sheets that allow somebody like Lewis easily to manage it and look at what really went on. And instead, he has to use their silly dashboards and go over each little uh, bar that they put into a graph to get the real counts. And so, for example, in this week, we talked about 684 deaths between the January 12th and January 18th. 784. And, 784, sorry. And yet, how many of them actually occurred in this week? 76 so far. Now, that would be fewer than 10%. In future weeks, they may come back and find more people that they should have said died of COVID because they had a positive test four weeks ago or eight weeks ago and loaded up that way. But in fact, of the seven, of the 3,945 deaths uh, accounted for since, is that uh, December 15th, Lou? Yes. Yeah. A thousand, more than a thousand of them were for prior periods. Mm -hmm. And in this particular uh, instance, Lewis has done the math weekly now to try to calculate it. And uh, in reports from four weeks ago, 582 of the deaths were from before December 15th. In reports three weeks ago, 160. My favorite is uh, last week's, in doing the math correctly, there were negative 41 deaths that had to have occurred in prior periods that the state was now reallocating. And as a result, we had 41 people who experienced apparently uh, a, a, a rebirth. Uh, Whether this is a bug in the death certificate matching process, we're not sure. The data is very, very limited and the transparency more so. Yeah. So the state of Arizona makes it harder for this state to defend itself from claims that it's the worst in the world in part because we're part of the United States with a 60-day instead of a 28-day death protocol, and in part because our own State Department of Health Services refuses to supply the data in a way that people can get to it, analyze what the state's reporting. And then, of course, people take holidays, and if you take off uh, Christmas Day and the day after Christmas and the weekend after that, then it all gets lumpy the following week, and it gets reported by our reporters as if there's been this massive die-off of people in the last 24 hours, when, again, it is because it's spread over a huge period of time. Another great example of this. Tuesday is typically the day where you start to see the biggest spike in daily reported deaths during the week because it catches all of the sort of run-through from the week. Weekend. All of the data is delayed by at least one day. So any, any numbers reported on Tuesday would be reflective of the Monday counts. The What's very interesting, though, is that today we actually only had, I think it was either zero or one death reported today instead of the, the three-digit number we probably would expect to see about this time. Because yesterday, as we all know, was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. 
and no one was working. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or nobody died. Or n- it's less likely to me, though. Now, now, talk to me about what the situation with hospitals is, because that's the other scary, uh, or should I be say, afraid, um, yeah. Be afraid, be very afraid. Is that the hospitals are overwhelmed. So this is something that we have been touching on since June, I believe. Uh, the The central issue here is that the total number of beds reported by AZDHS are not, in fact, the total number of hospital ex- beds that exist in the state. Either there is a patient beds or uh, ICU beds. Right. And the the delta here, the difference between these is the surge bed capacity. These are non-licensed beds that are not regularly staffed. And so in bringing these beds online to potentially fill up more capacity and, and otherwise deal with things, that you then have to either hire up temp staffing or do things like that. And that, that has Which its is typically challenges. what happens, by the way. This is not unique to this pandemic. There are surges on hospitals that occur regularly during the year, and it gets solved this way. Arizona has a huge influx of population of what we call snowbirds. Those snowbirds then end up in hospitals as well with the same sort of proportions that one would expect. And so the hospitals have to have to staff up. Do you have any idea how large that population shift is between, say, July and now? Because yeah. it could explain a very large proportion of the spike that we're seeing if it is, in fact, a, a big population swing. I hadn't actually had that occur to me before. Well, in fact, you're going to have to now do the research for next week because uh, I may not be here. But secondly, uh, there is a... Uh, There's the, also a surge of, of people coming in from other states like Oregon. Again, That's just what I was going to say. Right. Yeah. So my observation, although I've not done the analysis, that the analysis that we intend to do on this is looking at the U.S. Department of Transportation data on flights and in flights and uh, passengers coming into climbs that they want to enjoy during holidays. So during the winter, of course, huge numbers of people come from the Midwest and other places that are colder into Arizona, Southern California, and the southern states. And miraculously, those are exactly the places that are seeing surges. Why is that? Not only do you have an influx of people, you have an influx of people who are already risk tolerant. They have decided to travel. They're more likely to engage in social behaviors that would spread the disease. They're more likely to have had it and bring it with them, among so many other things, that the states where they arrived are taking the brunt of the blame for surges for not behaving correctly. That's right. Hold that thought. I want to come back with that and some other thoughts you had in news in Arizona and schools. When we come back, we'll be right back with the Hallman, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Portions of this show are brought to you by Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. I love it. It's my favorite product and the, my favorite product I've ever taken or endorsed. You get tens of thousands of vital nutrients made from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables that they lock into these vegetarian capsules using their unique cold press process. Three veggie, three fruit in the morning, and you are good to go. If you don't like swallowing capsules, I don't mind it. But if you don't, they make it easy to just open up and pour into a drink or on some food. They have a great deal right now as well where they're offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. This is not the time of year you want your energy to go low, and it is the time of year you want to be boosting your immunity. You can do it all with Balance of Nature. Give them a call at 800 Two four six eight seven fifty one, or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Hugh and Lewis Hallman are my guests. And what was the next area we wanted to move into here? In- I think we were going to talk about some developments with COVID-19 and the state's uh, educational yes. system. Yes. 
So uh, the the uh, schools in Flagstaff are facing a new a new case. Lewis, I think you know more about it than anybody. Yeah. So no. there there is a a new lawsuit that's being brought uh, in in Flagstaff by parents of students in, in the the school district up there. And what they're doing is they are they are attempting to get the state to either give them hybrid classes for their kids or give them a, a full in-person return, particularly as they're seeing schools here in Phoenix that have opened and have similar COVID stats to you know uh, uh, schools in their own communities. And so the big driver behind this, at least on behalf of the parents, seems to be a massive increase in depression and other mental health issues amongst their children, even little kids. And that, to me, I found this article just before we went on, on, uh, I think, azcentral.com. And I, I would encourage people to read this. It's a very, it it is a sad article to read. It makes your heart sink. I'm looking up one of them. I don't it, it know if really... it's the one you saw, but it says, quote, I keep I kept hearing the same story from friends whose children had never had any sort of behavior or emotional issues before. Really struggling, daily meltdowns, crying, headaches. For Kennington, one of the parents, I guess, all three of her children started showing signs of depression within months of going remote under the Flagstaff Unified School District's distance program. Absolutely. Children that never had problems before. Right. And and it's it's very unusual developmentally to see those kinds of issues in kids this young. Like typically, you know, you, you might start to see the development of more mental illness among kids in in and around puberty is when you'll start to see, you know, depression and other things start to manifest. But to see this in 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 little kids is just heartbreaking. It really is, you know, just to me some of the most compelling evidence that all of this good that we have and all of these great intentions that we have in wanting to minimize this pandemic are being taken out on the weakest amongst us. And it's just sickening. For a disease that won't affect them. Right. And that is that is continuing theme here is that we knew who and we've known for a long time who's most at risk. We could have undertaken steps to assure their safety. Uh, we instead shut down schools. Well, certainly there's, there are uh, articles now out, learned journals, looking at what happened in Italy. And some would say that the first step that Italy took that helped slow the pandemic there was to close schools and universities. Well, certainly that would slow the spread uh, of anything. But nobody has yet done a good job, although it's starting to get done, of the conversation about the costs of doing these certain things. So we've talked before, masking, social distancing. We've described the fact that it should not be a surprise to anybody that a virus variant uh, has now formed. It's B117 is its new name. Uh, that is the variant that spreads more easily among people. It has it, the variant that survived, that fit itself to the hurdles we are putting in place, overcoming masks, overcoming social distancing, are those that would spread more easily. And so it should not be a surprise that the very features of human activity to try to slow the pandemic has now potentially loosed upon us a version that will be much more difficult to handle. Um, it looks at this stage that it is a variant that is no more lethal. It is a variant that doesn't cause any worse form of COVID-19, but it is a variant that spreads more easily. Uh, we have yet to see good studies that look at whether or not masks, whether or not social distancing really was and has supplied 
a big change. We've made fun of the fact that the state of Arizona is in not very much a different condition than the state of California that did the most extreme things that were imposed on human beings in the world. Well, with the exception of China welding people. In the continental U.S. All right, in the continental U.S. Thank you, Lou. Um, But here we have still no really good analysis of that, and it's going to take some time. My concern about the conversation at all is, will it be allowed to take place? When we're entering into an environment in which the cancel culture stops the conversation by anybody who disagrees with the narrative that's preferred, we're seeing that certainly on the conservative side with the shutdown of Parler and other uh, other conservative voices. This may get worse. It may get very difficult for researchers who depend on federal dollars, for example, and at universities that uh, control the debate mm-hmm. to even investigate the cost-benefit analysis of these kinds of measures. And so we, we do have good data that shows that older people, 65 and over, were the ones at most at risk. Kids in grade schools and high schools were least at risk. And there's some data now that supports the idea that they were actually not even spreading the disease. We could have had a conversation about how do we protect teachers. Instead, it was, no, we will not reopen schools in many instances. Our own uh, uh, superintendent of public instruction was fighting the governor on his refusal to impose more restrictions at a state level and instead said, we will make the schools, we will give the schools the authority to make these decisions. The superintendent didn't like that answer and wanted statewide mandates issued by the governor. What is it about some folks, that they don't want individuals to be exercising their liberty and their responsibility. Now, well, let's actually let's get into that. Actually, that's a really interesting question. Right. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the sort of if, if I'm just empathizing for a second to me, the, the answer would be that they're afraid of error and the cost of those errors. So the issue in dealing with something like a virus, particularly back in April or March or May when we didn't really know as much, and and particularly as as far as how deadly this disease was going to be and all of the rest of it, you know, it's reasonable at some level to say, okay, we need to be perhaps more controlling than we would be because the cost of these potential unknowns is so high that we then cannot tolerate that error. Absolutely. You're going to err on the side of safety. And that's exactly what most states did, almost all of them, including the state of Arizona. And that was articulated. But as data was being provided and understood, we could tell who was most at risk, how to address that. And shutting down health clubs is still the most idiotic thing that one can imagine. Uh, that somehow health clubs were viewed as vectors for spreading the virus. Why? Because somebody thought that might be the case someplace in in the Midwest and in New York, and so therefore everybody had to adopt it. It's nonsense. Hold that thought right there on nonsense, and I'll let you pick up on it when we come back. There's a lot to go around. (laughs) We'll be right back. And we are back. I am Hugh Holman, joined by Lewis Holman. We are grateful to our friend Seth Liebson for allowing us to fill in for him. Well, actually, it's not his choice. We've decided to take the show over yet again. Uh, And here we are with Slop. Uh, We'll talk about that in a moment. We do first have to offer Seth 
an apology or at least an explanation. Lewis indeed is correct that centripetal force exists as a force, but it is the force that sucks an object into the center as it's moving about. And centrifugal force is the force that pushes it out and away from the center as it goes. Uh, There are both forces available in physics. And uh, Lewis will be writing his apology note uh, saying there is such a thing as centrifugal force 500 times on a piece of paper. And maybe arguing with my high school physics teacher again. Yes. So the uh, point we want to get back to is here we have folks in the city of Flagstaff, or actually in the district up there, suing the district for failing to open and provide alternative opportunities for students other than being online. And that raises the entire question about the the unintended consequences of the actions we've been taking to slow or stop the pandemic and the failure to even be willing to have conversations about that. At least one of the two of us has been exercised from another station uh, because he was unwilling to continue to speak only to the narrative that was preferred on that station. Uh, that is that uh, everything must be about pandemic and how we have to s- save ourselves and shut down and that sort of thing. Uh, instead, we continue to try to look at data as we shared with you. Lewis, your thoughts on this whole notion of the unintended consequences and the direction we're heading in these decisions? Well, it really does sort of come up with some some very wonderful and very interesting kind of, of ethical quandaries, right? To what degree... Can we as a society cause harm to one of our members in the interest of furthering the public good, right? So to what degree can we either coerce you to socially distance or can we impose restrictions on your business in the name of the greater good? What, like, to, to what degree is that ethical for us? And that greater good is measured by the lives that you might save or the people who won't get sick as a result of slowing or stopping the right. spread of the and disease. I, I, actually, I think that, that that is, in fact, kind of the answer is that it really does depend on how you are measuring and quantifying and describing what the greater good is. Because as we've discussed, one of the big differences between conservatives and liberals, for instance, is is differences in their rank order of preferences, the things that they value philosophically. Do they value uh, uh, sort of a decentralized problem solving and independence or do they value, value you know, more of a, a fairness, everyone gets this, the base level kind of outcome? Now, there are pro- pros and cons to both approaches. But they will definitely yield intractable, irreconcilable differences between them. So there are certain positions or certain values. If you say uh, one of them is the most important, fraternity, brotherhood, uh, providing uh, support and assistance to one another versus liberty. the Which is the ability to act unimpinged by others. Yeah. So those two are in some ways at odds with one another, and they are what make up the differences in the in the philosophical groundings of, of, of a conservative who honors liberty as a more important issue versus uh, a liberal, uh, now liberal, not a traditional liberal, who values brotherhood. Let me actually give this even a more sort of concrete, less philosophical example. Sort Please. of in the beginning of this pandemic, you know, we, we had a tremendous number of bailouts of different industries And the one that kind of holds my ire still and most fiercely is the bailout of the airline industry, whose stock value then about doubled after laying out 90,000 employees collectively. Uh, And so the contrast to this is in the retail space, where you 
did not see brick and mortar, you know, plants and firms get near the same kind of protections that they did. And so while we came to the conclusion that we want to ba- potentially bail out vulnerable industries, we then pick and choose what industry we think we might want to value. And so it's we are sort of to have friends in government in high really places is. who get to choose who the friends are and who the enemies are. But but that means that while we certainly gave assistance and help to a wonderful load of, of airline employees, all of the cashiers, all of these essential workers, they were passed over for the same kinds of benefits and, and help. And that's the issue here is that once you start sort of taxing the collective to give specific benefits to one subset, you are then harming very, very vulnerable people in other groups that then, you know, you... you are ignoring. And so when we come back in just a moment, if you'd like to call us at 602-508-0960, we'd be delighted to talk to you and we look forward to it. I'm Hugh, he's Lewis. Thank you, Seth, for this chance. Welcome back to Seth Liebson's show on KKNT 960, The Patriot. I'm Hugh Hallman filling in for Seth with Lewis Hallman, my brilliant son, much smarter than I am. I've achieved the great goal of a parent having smarter children than I am who are going to achieve better than I did. Uh, We were talking about the fact that we've had cost-benefit analysis going on uh, without actually discussing it in our society. Government has been told or government tells us that we have to lock down and do all kinds of things to protect ourselves. Whether or not we're sure that the things we're being asked to undertake protect ourselves, the protective behaviors that have been legislated uh, differ across the country. And that's what's been fascinating. The state of Arizona has been much lighter in its legislation from the top, at least. uh, And the governor here has gotten a lot of criticism for that uh, light touch. In contrast, the state of California uh, faced a problem of having imposed the most strict kinds of limitations on human behavior in the country, at least, uh, didn't know what to do next, given that it was uh, facing a huge spike in the pandemic, much the same that Arizona was. Well, the issue is we've got these protective behaviors that folks would like us to engage in with no conversation about their efficacy and the differences of impact from one person to another. The differences in the result, the benefits that might be imposed or received by people versus the cost that might be received. And we're going to talk about that in just a second, but we're going to go to the phones here because Jeff's been waiting patiently to join us. Jeff, you're on the air. Hello, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Yourself? Great, great. And I just want to say thank you very much for all the work you guys put in again, because I know uh, this is not something. This is something you do out of. Uh, uh, I don't think you get paid to do it, and I we do not. That great insanity and That's, passion, I suppose. Yes, exactly. So I appreciate that tremendously. Uh, two quick questions. First, Lewis, has anybody outside of Seth Leafson's show solicited you? or tried to get you on any other kind of media to report these uh, these numbers that are so much, uh, that are so controversial, or not controversial, but so much contradict what we're being fed in the public from Ducey and these people. We were able to get an article published in the Phoenix Business Journal a few months ago. Uh, we actually had three in the Business Journal, and one was picked up in the Arizona Republic oh, early right. on, which is what uh, started Seth deciding that it was interesting enough for us to tell you all. Uh, but uh, it is difficult because most of the written 
uh, materials that are out there or available are dying. So the space available and the capacity for them to print things is getting increasingly difficult. So Lewis puts it up on his website uh, for his company, and I distribute it uh, to those folks who are interested as well. But in terms of getting it out other than through Seth's show, not systematically. Okay, great. Um, so I'm, I'd really like to talk further about that later on something else. But one other question. Are you guys familiar with or do you know um, – I think about this, and I think about, okay, we're all these people, everybody's wearing a mask, and they say that a mask is more beneficial as you actually have the virus, and you're, it's catching the particles as you might breathe them out. Aren't these masks, once they're being used, once, or if you do have it, isn't that a hazardous hazmat problem, a biohazard? I, I actually like the uh, the creativity, Jeff. Thank you for the call. The uh, the. The reality is that the president of the, the president elect of the United States has been known to take his mask off, play with it, fling it around. That has been one of the continuing problems with wearing masks. My wife says as we're out running, which we try to do once a day, the saddest thing she sees out on the ground is a disposed of mask. But in this instance, I think you make a fair point. These are arguably uh, objects that ought to be disposed of appropriately by us because to the extent somebody's had coronavirus, certainly hospitals uh, dispose of those kinds of materials correctly. And I think it raises a very good point. The pretense of hygiene that our society has been engaging in that, uh, that now we'll wash our hands, now we'll clean our airplanes, now we'll actually clean our ho- hotel rooms. One wonders what's been happening beforehand. You know, there's been a, a great deal of this, though, in terms of the getting all of the the hygiene up and running, I think, that has caused us to really sort of circle around ineffectively, where we are um, kind of uh, uh, blaming one another for not indulging the, the in, in these what are, appear to be fairly low-cost uh, uh, solutions, but then we're also not ex- understanding what the trade-offs are to some of these, like, as you mentioned— you know, the possibility that, in fact, a used mask that you've been carrying in your pocket for a month may, in fact, be counterproductive. Yeah. So those are the kinds of cost-benefit analyses that have not taken place and that we've been advocating for. And our grave concern now is, as the counterculture, uh, non-counter-narratives are being shut out uh, in a variety of ways, whether or not we'll even get a chance to have these conversations to look at the cost of uh, on society of imposing the protective behaviors, and that's in quotation marks that certainly we're engaged in California, and Lewis made the point. Here we have a lawsuit in the in Flagstaff over the fact that students could not attend class in person, and the unintended consequences of that are dire and severe psychological challenges that are being visited on our kids. Well, that's not the only thing that's happened. We see government absorbing more power with less question being allowed, and that really goes to a narrative that Lewis has been studying called nudging. Right. So nudge theory is a a recent kind of discovery in behavioral economics, wherein by changing how a system is built, you can eliminate some of the thinking and extra work that goes into making that system function. Let me give you an example. Uh, Organ donation. So instead of the system that we have in the United States, well, in most states there's some yeah, system, but where, where you opt into organ donation, you check the box if you are willing to donate your organs. Many uh, other places have been introducing opt-out programs. So where, you're automatically deemed an organ donor unless you say no. Right, and so what that has done then is it's radically increased in those areas the availability of transplant organs 
because it then has you it kind of takes the the decision making and and kind of the the hassle of thinking about it out of the consumer's hand and basically assumes that they'll say yes unless they have a strong objection and then opt out. And that kind of choice set makes sense. Economics is studied. So law and economics is the concept of looking at all of those issues and making decisions, making choices in our society that we will have rules that make sense. The problem we now face is the choices that government is starting to make have moved up from simple things like we're going to drive on the right instead of the left side of the road, red means stop, green means go, and organ donation or not, to a much higher level of intrusion on everyday life. And that's something we we hope to have a conversation with Seth next week, but uh, we'll be back in just a moment to close the show. You really have to like pina coladas to enjoy that song fully. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We are here thanking Seth Liebson for allowing us to fill in for him. Uh, We've been talking about coronavirus, but sadly, our time is up. So, Lewis, I'm going to pitch it to you to give some final thoughts. So, in talking about unintended consequences, I sort of think back to my old high school ethics courses where we, we read Aristotle and, and studied virtue ethics. And Aristotle had the conception that the highest virtue is magnanimity, which is kind of a, a sort of generosity on behalf of the powerful. And, and he writes that only the powerful and, and the, the equipped can actually display this virtue, which actually rankles a a lot of people when they read this. They don't really understand it that well. It's kind of worth thinking about. If you don't have power, you can't be magnanimous. Exactly. And so, well, well, most people say that that this this just means that, you know, people of the, the lower economic classes then can't be virtuous in some sense. But that's actually not what I think Aristotle means. The issue is amongst the virtue of the powerful. What we need more than anything in this world is for the most powerful among us to decide to look after us and not use their enormous advantage over us to extinguish us and make our lives worse. So what you mean by look over us, you don't mean by uh, using authority to look over us. It means to be gentler in their use of power and recognize that arrogance and power are a really bad mix. Precisely. And currently we are about to undergo the, the... Transfer of power in a very, very unusual way. Our country, for its lifetime, has demonstrated the ability to transfer power peacefully. Although folks were wondering whether that could occur, given events at the Capitol uh, last week, the right answer is it's still going to occur. That the structures of our government will allow that transfer to take place, even in controversy. And very few other places enjoy that benefit. And part of what I think Lewis is uh, trying to remind us is those taking power need to trust the fact that they're not as smart as they think they are. That's absolutely right. God bless and class dismissed. <laughs>